0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Addressing Unmet Patient Needs in Bullis Pemphigoid, Exploring Targeted Treatment for Safe and Effective Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash MPM 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Hello, this is David Rosemary from the Indiana University School of Medicine. Welcome to this educational activity on addressing unmet patient needs in bolus pemphigoid. Joining me in this discussion is Dr. Erin Barrett from the University of Nebraska Medical Center.
2: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
1: Today's presentation is on bolus pemphigoid. Our goals for today include to identify and differentiate bolus pemphigoid from other skin conditions that can present similarly based on current guidelines and expert recommendations, to discuss the impact of bolus pemphigoid on elderly patients with regard to morbidity, mortality, and quality of life, particularly for those with several comorbidities, to select and monitor treatment for patients with bolus pemphigoid according to updated guidelines, and to explain the rationale to improve outcomes for patients with BP through the use of targeted therapy. Today, we're going to be talking about bolus pemphigoid. This is the most common autoimmune subepidermal blistering disease of the skin. It's primarily a disease of the elderly with onset after 60 years of age. It's rare to occur in children. There are certain HOA alleles that are more prevalent in BP patients than in the general population. The incidence annually is around 6 to 7 per million, and it rapidly increases after the age of 60. The risk is about 300-fold higher for patients 90 years of age or older than in those younger than 60 years. Also, there's a slightly higher predominance in men than women. Interestingly, the incidence has been increasing over the past couple decades. As we are an aging population in the United States and on more medications, we're witnessing this increase in BP prevalence. It's becoming more important to recognize the disease and to treat appropriately. Also of note, there doesn't seem to be any geographical predilection for the disease.
2: As you can see on this slide, classic bolus pemphigoid typically begins with severe itching followed by articaria or hives, then blistering characterized by these tense blisters on a erythematous or red base. However, there are, as you can see on the next slide, there are many variants of bolus pemphigoid, which I will briefly touch upon here and in later slides. Approximately 20% or 1 out of 5 bolus pemphigoid patients will present with non-bolus forms, as shown in this photo on the right. About 10% of these patients will proceed to develop blisters later in their course. As many patients will either initially or persist in a non-bolus form, they often can be misdiagnosed as having eczema or atopic dermatitis, severe systemic allergic reactions, or urticaria, also known as hives. Thus, BP should be considered in the elderly when there's severe itching or unexplained rash. And then you can see on this slide, as I mentioned earlier, BP can have many different forms. It can be generalized, as shown here in some of the patients, or localized. Generalized BP can also present in different presentations. They can be bolus on the top left there, articular in the mid-top slide there, vesicular in the third slide on the right there, or papular. And BP can also appear in only the sites of trauma or friction, such as hands and feet, also known as dyshydrosiform bolus pemphigoid. It can also appear in sites of prior surgery, radiation, fistula, or ostomies. And I've shown one patient here, as you can see, the radiation tattoo and the BP affecting the radiation site.
1: So what are the risk factors for bolus pemphiloid? Well, one of the biggest risk factors is age. The risk is about 300-fold higher when patients are 90 years of age or older compared to those who are younger than 60 years. And again, there's a slightly higher predominance in men than women. Second, there are genetic factors. For example, certain HLA types can increase the risk. Third, and incredibly important, are medications blood pressure meds, diabetes medications, and increasingly immune checkpoint inhibitors. As our lifespan increases and we have more elderly increasing in prevalence, additionally, there's more polypharmacy. So as elderly patients are on more medications, there's more opportunities for bolus pemphigoid to be triggered. In terms of the drugs associated with bullous there are some associations that are stronger than others, and much of the evidence is from case series, but some of them include some diabetes medications such as dipeptidopeptidase 4 inhibitors or gliptins, some diuretics, antipsychotics, and again, a really important class of medications that's causing increasing bolus pemphigoid are cancer immunotherapies. The PD-1 and PD-L1 in checkpoint inhibitors are becoming increasingly important medications in our therapeutic arsenal against cancers. And we're therefore seeing increased number of cases of bolus pemphigoid because of that.
2: Bolus pemphigoid have been reported to be associated with a number of different conditions, the most important are neurological conditions given there is a epitope of BP-180 in the central nervous system that's suspected to cause this association. So many patients with BP also suffer from dementia, Parkinson's, many wish had had strokes. So cardiovascular disease has also been associated including hypertension, stroke, and various clotting disorders such as venous thrombosis or pulmonary embolism. In terms of autoimmune disease, There are some case series that reports that there's an association with psoriasis. The association with cancer is very controversial, given that these are elderly patients. Some studies have found that there is an increased risk for various malignancies, while others have not shown this when adjusted for age. So the jury's still out. So when these patients present and have multiple comorbidities, the one-year mortality rate is close to 23%, which is almost a quarter, so quite high. And as you can see here, there's many studies showing that BP also is associated with decreased quality of life and increased anxiety and depression as
1: well. The diagnosis of bolus pemphigoid is often with clinical suspicion. Have an elderly patient with tense boa, it's very straightforward to test for bolus pemphigoid. But there may be other suspicious cases where you want to confirm the diagnosis, you're not sure, there's a differential, and biopsy is the gold standard for diagnosis. It's helpful to have both lesional or H&E staining as well as perilesional for direct immunofluorescence. On a lesional H&E stain, you would see a subepidermal bulla with lots of eosinophils, whereas on a perilesional direct immunofluorescence, you'll see linear deposits of IgG and or complement C3 along the basement membrane. The pathologist may use salt split skin in which the autoantibodies would be found on the roof or potentially both on the epidermal and dermal sides of the salt split skin. In terms of where to do the biopsy, for H&E, it's important to get a third of the peripheral portion of the blister, but also about two-thirds of the perilesional skin. And for DIF, when we say perilesional, it's about one centimeter away from the recent lesion. Now, oftentimes in dermatology, we think about using punch biopsies for inflammatory disorders. However, if you directly do a punch biopsy on a blister, sometimes it can shear off the blister. So there are some that will do shape biopsies instead to try to preserve the blister. In terms of ELISA or indirect immunofluorescence, those can also be useful to supplement the H&E and DIF. In terms of indirect immunofluorescence, that could be done with monkey esophagus or salt split normal human skin. And it usually is positive in 60 to 80% of patients that will exhibit circulating IgG antibodies less frequently to IgA or IgE. And the ELISA will have similar sensitivity. Of note, The specificity of the ELISA is not perfect. In one study, up to 7.4% of non-bullous pemphigoid patients will have circulating BP-180 or BP-230 antibodies by ELISA that are non-pathogenic. So Dr. Barrett, when do you suspect bullous pemphigoid?
2: I typically suspect bolus pemphigoid when there's an elderly patient with unexplained itch, and occasionally they can have intermittent rash as well, with or without blisters. However, I also always suspect it when there is any Blustering rash, And so it's really important when you see these patients to not only do a standard H&E, but also do a DIF as well, because that's really the gold standard, like you mentioned on the last slide. I think for me, localized bolus pemphigui is the most challenging and the easiest to miss.
1: That's interesting. I find that sometimes the clinical presentations where patients don't have blisters can also be sometimes challenging. It's always really important to have it in your differential. Also, sometimes non-elderly patients for me can be challenging as well because I often think of it as so much more prevalent in in that population. And then also sometimes if there's ever mucosal involvement also because that's so atypical. Are there any other clinical presentations that you find particularly challenging to diagnose pemphigoid in?
2: No, I think those are really, really good points. Anytime I see someone middle age, I do have a couple of those patients. Itching is very, very hard to pinpoint or even know where to biopsy. But, you know, the biggest challenge I had is when it's on existing inflammatory tissue. I remember a couple of years ago, I had a patient who only had blisters where she had stasis. And it was just really hard to pinpoint to distinguish what was the stasis and which part was the bolus pemphigoi. So I think I find those patients a little more challenging, but you're exactly right. Not every patient is going to present class is the elderly patient with the itchy, blistering rash.
1: What do you find is the most impactful for the patients? What is bothering them the most, most affecting their quality of life?
2: Well, I think, you know, the itch of bolus pemphigoid has been described by many of my patients as mind-numbing. It is very, very debilitating. It affects all aspects of their life, including sleep, to their ADLs. Luckily, you know, the treatments we have in our arsenal, including systemic steroids and topical steroids, can help their itch very quickly. And the newer agents, which we'll mention later, that target the TH2 pathway can also be very, very effective in helping them, relieving the itch symptoms even before the rash fully resolves.
1: Agreed. that blisters can be quite concerning for patients, but the itch is what I find drives them the most to be miserable. And so you always have to ask for patients, how's your itch doing, which I'm sure we both do. Absolutely. So in terms of our treatment goals for pemphigoid. I like to say we treat patients, not disease. So very important that we improve our quality of life of our patients. and We want happy patients, not just necessarily that it looks better for us. In an ideal world, they would be medication-free and in remission. But even if that's not possible, if we can give them chronic management to make their lives better, that's oftentimes the goal and the state that results in the best outcome. When I think about treatments for bolus pemphigoid, I often divide them into different categories. For example, first and oftentimes our first-line treatments are topical corticosteroids, and these can be highly effective. Even though we think about bolus pemphigoid often as a systemic disease, and it can be quite impressive, nevertheless, topicals can have a role. Second, we have our antibiotics. And even though bolus is not a microbial disease, it's not a bacterial one, the antibiotics can have anti-inflammatory properties, including doxycycline or tetracycline class antibiotics, which have get anti-inflammatory properties. They can help with matrix metalloproteinases. We also may use dapsone, which can inhibit neutrophils. We have our immunosuppressive agents that we traditionally use, including methotrexate, mycophenolate, azathioprine, and also some more targeted treatments like the anti-CD20 antibody rituximab. Also, which can be of great use is IVIG, which can have a very favorable safety profile. Unfortunately, it's quite expensive and can be in short supply, but that can be a very meaningful agent for patients who are suffering. And then lastly, we'll, we'll have a discussion on these targeted treatments, including the anti-IgE omalizumab and the anti-IL-4 receptor antibody dupilumab.
2: Another way I personally like to think about treatment is in terms of two things. One is the therapeutic target. So in terms of whether we're targeting the inflammatory system or are we targeting the adaptive immune system or are we targeting the TH2 or or I like to think of as allergic pathway. The other factor I think about is disease severity. So in terms of whether they have mild to moderate disease, localized disease, in in terms of how high their anti-BP. P180 and 230 titers are and where the disease is localized. And I'll go over some of these uh, considerations on the next few slides, as well as evidence for treatment. So this is a table from a publication that broke down the treatment in a different way. So this is another way of looking at the typical therapeutic ladder. This slide shows that in localized or mild disease, you can think about using topical steroids or low-dose systemic steroids, plus or minus anti-inflammatory, antimicrobial, such as Doxycycline or Dapsone, as mentioned earlier by Dr. Rosemarin, and in more severe and generalized disease, in addition to using topical steroids to the entire affected areas, you may also consider using higher doses of systemic steroids as well as systemic agents, which will be described in the same table on the next slide. So as you can see here on the next slide, in addition to systemic steroids, you want to consider conventional immunosuppressive agents such as methotrexate, azathioprine, mycophenolate, and I would like to add to the list rituximab as well. And in patients, as shown here, who cannot tolerate immunosuppression or have incomplete response to immunosuppression, you want to consider adding doxycycline, dapsone, omelizumab, or dipilumab. And I want to highlight the next couple of slides, evidence for various agents described here. First, this is an important study published in the New England Journal that basically compares topical steroids versus systemic steroid for bolus pemphigoid. So as you can see here, remarkably, topical steroids, when used to the entire body, actually perform better in terms of efficacy, one-year survival, and severe complications. So when considering treatment for this population, do not forget yeah, to try topical steroids first. So however, there are some obvious drawbacks, as shown here on the next slide, such as local side effects, of topical steroids. There's also going to be difficulty with adherence, especially in the elderly and those with limb-impaired mobility. And there is also consideration when used on large BSA, there's going to be systemic absorption and the same side effects that we see for systemic steroids. Another important study I want to point out is this randomized controlled trial from The UK and Germany, they basically was evaluating the efficacy of an anti-inflammatory, antimicrobial doxycycline in its comparison to systemic steroids. What they found was that doxycycline plus topical steroids, when compared to systemic steroids, that it was non-inferior. So I think the key takeaway here is that at least 75% or most of the patients do actually get better on doxycycline and topicals. The study also found that it is safer than systemic steroids. What about Dabzone? Unfortunately, there's currently no randomized controlled trial, but case series does show that it can be effective in up to 80%. So, rituximab, which is a drug that we use quite frequently in all autoimmune blistering diseases, the main evidence we have for bolus pemphigoid is not as strong as for pemphigus. It is from a small retrospective study, not a randomized controlled trial. However, the efficacy is found to be quite similar to some of the other autoimmune blistering diseases. As you can see here, this study in particular and multiple other studies found that it is over 90% effective. However, shown here in the next slide, the caveat here is that unlike for other autoimmune blistering diseases such as pemphigus, close to 40% of patients with bolus pemphigoi will require more than one cycle for toximap to achieve complete remission. So always keep that in mind that if you don't get complete remission after one cycle, you should consider one additional. So when discussing this with patients, you should set expectation on how long the treatment will be. What about IVIG as mentioned earlier? So there is one RCT comparing IVIG to a placebo that favored IVIG in terms of disease activity score, but unfortunately it just missed statistical significance. And I reserve typically in my own clinic IVIG for patients who cannot tolerate immunosuppression or have underlying immune deficiencies or iatrogenic immune deficiencies. It is also a good adjunct treatment for those who need rapid disease control. But as mentioned earlier by right, Dr. Rosemary, it's very expensive. So in terms of assessing treatment response, it's almost identical to the initial assessment for these patients, which include a detailed exam of the skin and mucosa for activity of disease. We also assess for treatment-related side effects during the visit, so inquire about any infections, any other side effect they may experience. And then I also always check vitals on these patients, so that includes blood pressure and heart rate as well as temperature. And depending on the medication they're on, you want to also check routine blood work for the their liver function, creatinine, and complete blood count, as well as occasionally you can check a hemoglobin A1c if they're on chronic steroids. In terms of optimal duration of treatment, it really depends on the specific agent and the patient. In general, for immunosuppressive treatment when used, I stop the treatment or consider tapering the treatment when the patient is in medication-induced remission, and that means that they have formed no new lesions in the last two weeks, and all the old lesions are starting to heal. When considering stopping immunomodulatory treatments such as dupilumab, at minimum, they have to have no flare-of-disease for three months, but that's a bare minimum. And for many of these patients, given the really favorable safety profile, the treatments continued indefinitely for maintenance.
1: That was truly an excellent review of the traditional treatments of bolus pemfigoid. One aspect that I worry about is polypharmacy because many of our elderly patients are already on many other treatments. I certainly use a drug interaction checker if I see a whole long list that's a page or two pages long. I wonder, do you have any tips or tricks that you can express, Dr. Barrett?
2: Yes. So I, like you, are a big fan of drug interaction checkers. I always like to double check everything. The we use has a really good built-in medication checker as well, but that obviously depends on how good of a history that you took and if you included all their medications. Luckily, most of the treatment that I just described in the last 10 slides do not actually interact with many medications such as antihypertensive or diabetes medications. However, one interaction that comes up a lot is when these patients are placed on PCP prophylaxis due to the bone marrow suppression risk. So I tend to prefer a if I can get it covered. But yeah, I think in general, you want to also consider the sedating factor of your medication. So many of these patients are elderly. So when you are placing them on anything like antihistamines for itch, you really want to make sure they're not on anything else for sleep. So those are the big ones for me.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point with uh, trying to avoid sedating side effects from the medications we're using to treat. And it's very different from how we may treat people who are itchy, who are younger, who don't have these comorbidities. You have to be careful. You also commented on prednisone and corticosteroid tapers. I'm always loath to give oral steroids or systemic steroids in general for, for any patients because of the systemic side effects. But one aspect is I have to be very careful about is a too short of a taper, as you mentioned. Patients will flare if you taper off too quickly. You mentioned using prophylaxis for PCP. Do you take any precautions for osteopenia or osteoporosis in your patients?
2: That's a really, really good point. So I generally always put them on calcium, vitamin D, or if they have GI side effects from their systemic steroids, I'll put them on Tums. So it's like two birds with one stone. just want to make sure they don't take it concurrently with some of their other medications that can be taken with minerals. But, you know, I think most primary care physicians will help with this. If I think a patient is going to be on systemic steroids long term, I certainly would discuss with the primary care about a bisphosphonate for these patients. However, I think to minimize their risk, the most important thing to do is to start your steroid sparing agent as soon as possible. So I try to start this within two weeks of meeting these patients. That way you can minimize how long they are on systemic steroids. Generally, I try to keep my course less than six to eight weeks when possible. But that's a really good point about bone protection for these patients.
1: And another question that always comes up is, well, how long do you give a patient on a certain treatment to see if it works?
2: No, that's a great question. So many of these agents are slow to act. So I divide them into kind of like short acting, medium acting, and longer acting. So in general, systemic steroids, IVIG, and some of the newer agents like Bupulumab works relatively quickly for at least the itch and their symptoms. So those agents I usually give for around 4 to six weeks. And if they have no efficacy, then I consider increasing the dose or changing depending on the medication. For some of the immunosuppressive agents, those may take a little bit longer and that includes methotrexate, mycophenolate. Those take up to six to eight weeks to work. So you want to really account for that. And then rituximab is probably the slowest agent. It can take up to 12 weeks for it to work, but generally you should start to see improvement within about six weeks. So, you know, when I start treatment, if I know a patient has that disease and I'm going to start Multiple agents. I really try to make sure that I start the longer acting agents early because those are the agents that are going to get me off of the steroids, right? That are going to get the patients off the steroids. So I try to start them as soon as possible. Once you start with the steroids, you should be thinking about the exit plan, right? You should be thinking about, and I'm sure you do the same, which medium agents to add and what long term agents to add. But that's a really good point.
0: So
1: bullous pemphigoid is fundamentally an autoimmune disease. They are both humoral and cellular responses against the two self-antigens BP180 and BP230, bullous pemphigoid antigen 2 and BP antigen 1 respectively. Those antigens make up the hemidesmosome which is an adhesion complex that promotes the epithelial to stromal adhesion. Also, Th2 cytokines are a key part of the disease. They are elevated in the lesional tissue and patients' blood. Additionally, interleukin 4 is needed for class switching from IgG1 to the pathogenic IgG4 antibodies. A great study by Gail Yosipovich showed that IL 13 levels also heavily correlate with patients' itch of bolus pemphigoid. So, while we usually think of our Th2 diseases of atopic dermatitis, asthma, allergic rhinitis, we're now expanding what we view as type 2 inflammation. For example, eosinophilic esophagitis, maybe fibrosis, and now bullus pemphigloid. Autoreactive T-cell responses to these antigens are crucial for stimulating the B-cells to produce these pathogenic autoantibodies. After the autoantibodies bind to the BP antigens, there is a subsequent cascade, including complement activation, recruitment of inflammatory cells such as neutrophils and eosinophils. Also, proteases are activated, which degrade the extracellular matrix proteins.
2: As shown here, as you know, omelizumab is a monoclonal anti-IIG antibody that's currently approved for asthma and chronic urticaria. And as you're all aware, it has been used for bolus pemphigoid. This is an image from the original case series in which they used it in six patients with both urticarial and blistering presentations. And they had a quite impressive response rate, about 83%. And remarkably, 50% of the patients responded to it as a monotherapy. However, the caveat here is, is all the patients showing this case series had an elevated total IgE and most had eosinophilia as well. And as you know, that total IgE has been found elevated in up to 70% of patients, both BP. However, in my clinical experience, not all patients will have this, so up to 70% will have elevated IgE, so about 30% do not. And I find that omelizumab works best in those patients who fit that profile with an elevated IgE given that it's the target of this medication.
1: So we spoke about the importance of the type two inflammatory pathway in the cellular and numeral immunity. That's part of the pathogenesis of bolus pemphigoid. Because of this, dupilumab has been used in bolus pemphigoid. This was the first patient that was treated with this medication. He was an 80-year-old male with latent tuberculosis, hep B or positivity, and quite frankly, couldn't get off of prednisone. Every time we tried to taper, the patient was re-hospitalized. So we tried dupilumab, and insurance companies, I think, realized it was cheaper to try this option than having the patient get re-hospitalized, and he had quite a remarkable response. His itch approved in one week, his blisters completely resolved while on treatment, and I'll say that seven years later, he continues to be blister-free since starting. So you can see in the picture, he had quite severe disease before treatment, and then on the right, he became blister-free shortly after starting. You can also still observe the post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation that we can sometimes see in skin of color patients as they improve. Now that we have more experience with dupilumab, there is a recent study published in JAMA Derm about a cohort experience. Here there was 146 patients with bolus pemphigoid and 87% of those were treated with dupilumab at the standard atopic dermatitis dosing of 300 milligrams every two weeks after an initial loading dose of 600 milligrams and achieving control within four weeks. So of those, 35.6% are achieving complete remission and only 9% are relapsing during observation. There was a rapid and sustained improvement in this BPDI scores, which measure our bolus pemphigoid measure, in the itching scores, in the autoantibodies that were detected, in total IgE levels, in eosinophil count. So, Dupilumab really seems to target directly the pathogenesis of bolus pemphigoid. In terms of the safety of the medicine, no new side effects were popping up in this population. It seems to have similar adverse events to our use in other diseases, which are infectious, and you can also get a transient eosinophilia as well. Of note, they found that higher autoantibody levels, like anti-BP180 antibody levels, were associated with better control. Also, they did see a slight association that male patients were more likely to relapse, although we'll have to see if that bears out in future studies. There currently is a phase three pivotal study that is underway. The design is a one-to-one randomization of patients to dupilumab or placebo. All patients are getting some prednisone to start, which is then tapered down. And the endpoint is measuring patients who are blister-free. And it will also hopefully show that patients have a reduction in itch when they're on dupilumab compared to placebo. Currently, dupilumab is used off-label. However, with this study, hopefully we'll get regulatory approval.
2: Complement inhibitors are also very very interesting and being considered for bolus pemphigoid. So this came from basically an older drug, chromolin, which stabilizes mast cells. It had been reported in some patients to improve their paritis. Given that complements and mast cells have a very close relationship, mast cells can be activated by various complements, and it can also produce complement in itself. Several groups are looking at using complement inhibitors such as C5A, which is a mast cell activator, as well as leukotriene B4 inhibitors to improve symptoms of bolus pemphigoid. And a small phase two trial did show that there's improvement in nine patients with bolus pemphigoid. So more to come on that And as you know, BP is a disease that affects the elderly with many comorbidities. So the goal of treatment is really to find as targeted treatment as possible. So the future of the field is really moving towards therapies that target the TH2 pathway. So several of the ongoing trials are focused on anti-eosinophilic agents, including two agents that target IL-4 and IL-5 pathway, both of which are potent eosinophil activators. Currently, anti-IL-5 is approved for asthma. Another target is EL-taxin-1, which is eosinophil and eosinophil chemotractin. So the gradient of EL-taxin-1 recruits eosinophil into the skin. And currently, there's a phase two trial studying anti-EL-taxin in bolus pen and one other agent to mention, Efertigimod, is a neonatal FC receptor antagonist. is currently being studied for both pemphigus vulgaris and bolus pemphigoid. This is not really a target for the TH2 pathway, but it is a newer drug I want to briefly mention here. So neonatal FC receptors basically protect immunoglobulin IgG from degradation. So by blocking this receptor, the total antibody level quickly lowers. So this drug has a potential for rapid disease control in these patients, but it is considered an immunosuppressive agent still because it has the potential to cause hypogammaglobulinemia. So many new drugs coming down the pipeline, so stay tuned. So this slide shows the design of the current trial for the neonatal FC receptor antagonist Efertigimod for bolus pemphigoid. As you can see here, the medication is given intramuscular weekly for 35 weeks with a concurrent prednisone taper. So more to come on this.
1: Now we're going to go over two different cases. The first one is a patient who was originally referred to me and managed jointly with Dr. Michael McLeod, a blistering disease expert at Tufts Medical Center. She was a 70-year-old with both bolus pemphigoid and psoriasis and was initially treated with oral steroids and then with methotrexate and, and IVIG. Unfortunately, she had a bad reaction to IVIG. She had compression fractures while on steroids, and the methotrexate alone did not control her disease. When she was initiated on dupilumab, she had a notable response, but not a complete response. She was subsequently increased to dupilumab weekly, so double the standard dose, and that cleared her. You can see in the pictures of her hands, she had significant involvement, and subsequently after starting on dupilumab, she completely cleared. Even though this is just a picture of an isolated part of of her body in her hand, she really had blisters all over her body. Subsequently, unfortunately, she went off of dupilumab. It was discontinued by a non-dermatologist during a hospitalization for a gastric ulcer, and a month later, her disease recurred. Luckily, though, she restarted dupilumab and recaptured her original response.
2: Our second case is a man in his 60s with obesity and hypertension with acute onset of blistering rash. Biopsy was performed for H&E and DIF to be consistent with bolus pemphigoid. And ELISA was done as well, showing quite high titers for this patient. As you can see in the image here, he has classic bolus pemphigoi with positive DIF and really high autoimmune antibody level. The decision was made to use anti-B cell agents on him given that he had a classic presentation and clearly had a really active adaptive immune system with the high anti-BP-180. His treatment course included temporary taper, a brief taper of prednisone, concurrent use of mycophenolate as a steroid sparing agent, and early rituximab. And this patient only required one cycle. And at the end of the 12-week period, so three months period, his skin was completely clear and everything was stopped. As you can see here on the next slide, at one-year follow-up, he was still in remission, completely clear. And he remained clear at his two-year follow-up and then did not return for substance follow-up given that he remained in remission.
1: So, Dr. Barrett, I sometimes will use some targeted treatments for those who are particularly fearful of side effects from treatments or maybe the recalcitrance of some of our traditional therapies. When do you like to use some of the targeted therapies like omalizumab and dupilumab?
2: I think... You know, when appropriate, when in patients who cannot tolerate immunosuppression, I prefer to go to dupilumab or omalizumab quite quickly. And your work really have pioneered this in the last couple of years. I found that it's easier and easier to get dupilumab approved for these patients. However, you know, it sometimes is still very difficult given that unless they have concurrent atopic dermatitis, it's still not approved. So, hopefully, with the new phase three trial, that approval will be in the future and we can use this on all of our patients. For patients with severe disease, such as shown in case two, who have very high anti BP1A titers, and when I cannot get duplumab approved, I will do the anti BP cell agents, including rituximab and mycophenolate. given I know that they will be put into remission by that regiment. Omolizumab, I found, is a little more difficult to get covered than dupulumab currently. And I think with the phase three trial, dupulumab will become even easier to get covered. The one population I have not had issues getting both of these covered is the cancer population. So most of the time I can get dupulumab and omolizumab covered for those patients. I think that's a great point. Unfortunately, in our everyday practice, we are limited by what is covered for these patients and what is not. But in the ideal world, I think targeted therapy is preferred.
1: Absolutely. The medicines are only as good as their access. I also find that if a patient has a malignancy, you want to make sure you document that as the reason why you may want to give one of these targeted therapies. And oftentimes that facilitates approval. I have had some success getting Jacomeb from Medicare patients, but not always. Do you have any tricks to getting the medication that you want approved?
2: A lot of these elderly patients have concurrent atopic. A lot of times, you know, after I treated them in those cases where I treated them with rituximab and mycophenole, they still have residual itch. A lot of times it's difficult to distinguish whether it's from their baseline eczema or their bolus pemphigoid. In those cases, I usually document their cirrhosis and excoriations and and I prove that their titers low. In those cases, I have been able to get the dupulumab covered for them, but it is very, very difficult. And like you said, I think documenting comorbidities that prevent them from being immunosuppressed is really important as well.
1: I agree with you. I think making sure you document those comorbidities is probably the most helpful step to trying to get approval for our patients. Do you ever increase the dupilumab dose?
2: Yes. So to answer your question, there's two ways to do it. So you've shown a really amazing case of weekly dosing. The other way to do it is to increase them to 600 biweekly. And I have one case of that in the last few years where I needed to do that if we can get it approved, but it's rare. And that was for a oncology patient as well. But I think it's rare that we need to increase. Typically, the 600 loading and the 300 every other week manages their symptom quite nicely.
1: In terms of the patients who have developed bolus pemboid from a checkpoint inhibitor, do you do anything differently in terms of your management?
2: Yes. So that's a really, really good question. So you really want to stay away from long-term systemic steroids, given that it does decrease the efficacy of the checkpoint inhibitor. So the studies actually say you should stay below 7.5 milligram, which is quite low. And you really want to be as targeted as possible for these patients, right? So my preferred steroid-sparing agents would be if you cannot get one of the targeted TH2 agents approved, then you would think about an anti-metabolite like methotrexate. And then even rituxan a lot of oncologists are fine with, given it's more of a targeted biologic. But as we discussed earlier, right, you have a really good chance of getting map approved for these patients given their cancer diagnosis. So that's really preferred.
1: Yeah. We've discussed the epidemiology, the comorbidities, the varied clinical presentations, pathogenesis, traditional and emerging treatments today. In summary, bullispenfiboid, it's increasing in incidence and can have some really non-traditional presentations. So it's very important to have on your differential diagnosis. We have multiple traditional options which can help different patients. They also have their challenges in terms of drug interactions and side effects. Luckily, there are some exciting new treatments on the horizon that will hopefully change the way we treat the disease. So, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you found this program to be useful as you care for your patients with bolus pamphagoid. I want to particularly thank our expert, Dr. Barrett, for being here and contributing her insights to the discussion. Thank you.
0: Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash MPM 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals.